Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and I am so thrilled to remind you I am the author of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure, which comes out this very week. Or if you're listening to this after the episode came out, it's already available. So either pre-order your copy or get your copy immediately. What I'm holding here in my hands, if you're watching us on YouTube or wherever you, you check out the show, is the original 1991 edition of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. I wrote this in the fifth grade. It was my first big story, and I have been carrying it and revising it and rewriting it for 32 years. And this year, by God, you're finally going to get the final, final, final revision. But if you're interested in the fully illustrated version by fifth grade me, well, good news, this copy is included in the new version as well. So you get two books for the price of one. You can't beat a deal like that. Check out Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. It's Indiana Jones meets National Geographic. A worm gets picked up by a bird. Uh, manages to escape being eaten only to be dropped on the roof of a house and he's got to get back to his bunch. It's a nonstop exciting thrill ride of, uh, of adventure and suspense. Check that out. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is a slightly older reader, so maybe eight to ten, whereas Rob Worm's Bird Adventure, I would say, as though as, as early as five years old, should enjoy this story of a, of a worm adventure. Nonstop action. I've got you, got you set for your reading this weekend. Uh, for more information about all of that, not to mention a clip of me reading both of those books, and more importantly, interviews with thousands of authors, editors, literary agents, the world's best people, book people, head to middlegradeninja.com. Uh, and we have got to get started. That might be the longest intro I've ever done. Uh, Cindy Callahan, thanks uh, so much for waiting patiently <laughs> while we plugged all the books. Um, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by asking them to sit through me summarizing either their books or their backgrounds. Why would we do that when you're right here and could do a better job? Uh, so if you would give esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Hi, great. Yes. Good morning, Rob. Thanks for having me. My name is Cindy Callahan, and I am a middle grade author best known for Just Add Magic. Uh, that's two books in the series, Just Add Magic 1 and 2. And that was developed into an Amazon original series that went on for five seasons and was nominated for an Emmy. So super exciting project. Um, and another nine books thereafter. Um, I'm also well known for my Lost In books. That's a set of five standalones that are co-branded um, about a 13-year-old girl who goes on an adventure in a different foreign or U.S. city. Um, yeah, and that's me in a nutshell. I've got all kinds of, of questions for you. I love a good origin story, and I know that you were a reluctant reader early on, although you wrote a, you wrote a play in the third grade, right? You really did your homework. Yes. And as soon as you held up your fifth grade book um, that, you know, I knew I wanted to mention that. So my first big, big project was in third grade. And at that time, a very popular movie was Grease. And I wrote the sequel to Greece uh, together with my father who helped me type it. Um, and then it gets even better. My third grade class with the help of an amazing music teacher put the production on. Uh, at school. So really exciting. Um, to sort of tie the world full circle, I was recently at that school, that same elementary school for a visit, 
And I still have a copy of the original typewritten play that I bring with me and I show them and I gave the presentation in the same gym in front of the same stage that the play um, was put on. Thereafter, I also took a took a, a picture of a, a portion of it and I put it on my Facebook page and I was surprised how many people from third grade I'm still connected to in some way. And there was a handful of people who commented that either they remembered it or they were in it. They remembered what part they played. Um, but yes, that was my first big project. Um, and thereafter, I wrote all kinds of, of different things from, you know, melodramatic poetry to legal thrillers. But as you said, I, I was a reluctant reader and I don't call myself a reluctant reader anymore. I call myself a lazy reader. Uh, I have a what used to be a 25 page rule. I've kind of inched it up to a 50 page rule. Um, if I am not fully absorbed in a book by 25 to 50 pages, I don't finish it. And I, I don't finish a, a big percentage of books, um, not because they're not good books, but because they're not grabbing me. Um, and it could be my mood, um, or it could just be that it's not the style of book that I prefer. And I do the same thing with audiobooks. Um, I subscribe to Scribd and I get a ton of audiobooks for free. I listen to a lot of audiobooks in a week. And um, there's a good handful that I start and I don't finish because it's just not not working for me. But long answer to a very short question of, yes, I was a reluctant reader and that first project was in third grade. No, I think that's a very good rule to not finish um, books that aren't of interest. You know, I make exception, of course, if the author's coming on this show. <laughs> and and I never mentioned that the book did not interest me at first. Um, but uh, if they're coming on the show, we, we plow through. Or if the book uh, comes highly regarded, highly recommended, and I think there's a chance that I'm just missing something and I need to be a better reader. Uh, but certainly by uh, page 100, if I even if you know, the world's best reviewed book, if you still haven't grabbed me, then, you know, I'm not getting I'm not getting credit for a grade here. This is my fun time. <laughs> I, I, com I completely agree. And there are many books that are either recommended by people or many people and sometimes very, very well reviewed books. And I'm like, I'm just, it's, it's not for me. It's, it's not you. It's me. Like It's definitely me. It's not my thing. And my reading pile that I of things I want to read is just too tall to spend time on something that I'm not loving. Well, inevitably, unfortunately, there's not unfortunately, we are blessed that there are so many books in the world that nobody could read them all in one lifetime. So why suffer through one? Uh, with with I, I'm thinking of an exception, I did finish Twilight. Uh, it did not grab me. I was not interested. But I appreciated all the craft that went into it by the time I was done. And I thought, well, that was good for me to have put myself through that experience, despite not being a, a particularly pleasant one. And I, and I liked Twilight. I did read, I read all of the books and I, um, and, and I liked them. So it's all, oh, it's, it's all a, a wonderful series. I can absolutely see why it was so popular. Um, yeah. I just don't think Stephanie Meyer wrote it with uh, uh, middle-aged white men in, in mind. <laughs> I don't think For sure. <laughs> and I found it was a little bit uh, creepy that that Edward has been around for a hundred years and is still in the interested in uh, high school girls. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. You know that. I don't want to go on too many tangents. The the movie Dirty Dancing. You know, great movie, classic. 
that always bothered me. I felt that Patrick Swayze looked or was just too much older than, than Jennifer Grey. And it always, that movie has always creeped me out. Fair enough. Although if, 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 if you look for it, uh, esteemed audience, somebody mashed up the um, intro to The Muppet Show with the end dance of, uh, of, of Dirty Dancing. It might be the greatest internet mashup ever created. Oh, funny. I'd have to look for that. You know, I'll link to it in the show notes. That's how much I want esteemed audience to enjoy <laughs> this incredible mashup. Okay. So uh, obviously you write your play in the, the, in the, in the third grade. Um, it's going to go on to, to be a tremendous success. No doubt it's a straightforward path from there to becoming an author, except <laughs> you, you, you go to the University of Southern, Southern California to write for film, but somehow you end up getting an MBA and, and working 20 years in pharmaceuticals. Where's the right turn there? What happened? Yeah, it's it's exactly like it's exactly like you said. So I, I went out to the University of Southern California thinking I would go into film writing. I went in as undeclared and, you know, learned pretty quickly that, um, you know, without being related to Steven Spielberg or coming in with this huge portfolio, getting into the USC film school was was highly un unrealistic. Um, I just heard recently that it was harder to get into the USC film school than it was to get into an Ivy League university. Um, nevertheless, I was able to take many film classes while I was there and, and did a great deal of studying film. Um, and then there was a couple other changes that happened in my life and, and I loved being visiting the West Coast. I didn't think I was, I was, I'm an East Coaster. I'm from Jersey, I'm a Jersey girl and the West Coast wasn't someplace that I, wanted to live for a long time. So I ended up transferring back east. I was closer to my family, came to the University of Delaware. And the only way I could graduate in four years, it was four years plus a summer session, was to be an English major, um, which wasn't something that was that was in the plan, but I went with it, um, picked up a French minor because I felt like that was gonna do great things for me in my life. Um, and then with an, uh, an English major, wasn't sure what I was going to do, so figured I would go to law school. Well, I don't know if I want to go to law school exactly. I'll take the LSATs, but maybe I'll also take the GMATs. Uh, and throughout the course of my childhood, you know, growing up a girl in 70s and 80s, at that time in New Jersey, girls were steered more towards English and history, and I didn't have an extensive math background. Um, so I didn't expect that I was going to do very well on the GMATs. I did some practicing, tried to learn calculus, um, but I figured the LSATs would really be where my expertise would lie. Um, and turns out the girl who's not a numbers girl did really well on the GMATs, got into the um, master's program at University of Delaware, uh, ended up loving economics, got an internship at a very small local pharmaceutical company that ended up merging with a really big pharmaceutical company, got another job and another job and had a, a wonderful 20 year career there. And and even thereafter, even after I left, I still do consulting with different companies. Um, writing became my plan B or my exit plan well into my career. I started getting back into writing. Um, and then, you know, small projects became bigger projects and became bigger projects. And then um, I just thought I had one to query a literary agent who liked it. And and that became Just That Magic. 
You mentioned the, the, the minor in French, which is not particularly helpful, but you are the author of Lost in Paris. So <laughs> the long yeah. game there, I assume that, did, that that came in handy a little bit. Yeah, I've always been kind of a Francophone and uh, without having been to Paris until you know, until my adult life, I didn't have a passport until I was like 30. Um, and that was just for work because I would travel um, with that company would send me all over the place, which broaden my world uh, considerably um and and then I got to go to go to France a couple different places in France throughout my career there and that book was originally called pardon my French um and it was it was going to be like a rock and roll mystery that that took place in France and um and that's how I was able to get that firsthand exposure to to Paris so what I'm hearing, and, and I think the facts bear this out, is you have you are a woman of many talents. You mm -hmm. could go in just about any direction that you want, uh, and 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 probably find success. So I am assuming for 20 years in pharmaceuticals, you're not pining for a different career the whole time. You're finding fulfillment. You're you're living a a, a perfectly fine life uh, that you're that you're enjoying. Are there times where like one day I'm going to write, or was that not even uh, on the on the radar? Um, it, it was always on the radar and always kind of way in the back, but I, I did, I, I loved my career, you know, I still like, and I still do. Um, I, I think I was good at it. I worked really hard at it and I wanted to do well and excel, um, so much so that I worked a lot. I worked a lot in the office. I worked a lot at home and I traveled a lot. Um, and I became a workaholic, a workaholic. And I, I think that's a real, I think it's a real thing, you know, it gave me a rush, if, uh, if you will. And it also then has a cost on the other end. I wasn't spending a lot of time with, with friends, not as much time with my family. I had three small children um, and it was taking a toll on my physical and mental health. And I needed to carve out more time for me and some more space for, my brain and that ended up manifesting itself as I'm going to take a writing class um, and you know would do small assignments and then I wanted to take on bigger assignments I'm someone who's just really driven in whatever I'm doing, whether it be pharmaceuticals or writing or running or, or whatever. Um, and and that's that's how that veered off to do more writing and, and then I ended up remembering how much I really loved it. So when you switched to writing, were you able to find a better uh, work-life balance or were you just a workaholic now for writing, but able to do it at home at least? <laughs> Doing it at home is, is huge because I can multitask at the same time. And um, while I still get, am very driven uh, for my work and, uh, and I make goals for myself and I have many projects that I work on at the same time, I definitely work at it fewer hours a week. Um, and since I don't have a boss or someone who I'm accountable to except myself who, you know, I hold myself to very high accountabilities. Uh, I can say, you know what, I'm just fried. I'm going to take today off or the week off or the month off or two months off. And, and I've done that. I've taken very long breaks to do other things or to recharge my creative battery. And I have the flexibility to do that where I didn't, before. So, um, well, since we're there, what does a what does a day in which you're going to hold yourself to the highest standard look like? Oh, I get up around six. 
um, do some do some social media. I, I usually have a list of things that I'm interested in posting about. Um, so I try to keep engaged on all of the various social channels. Uh, and I don't I try not to spend too much time on it. I also look at comments and reply to those maybe 20, 20 minutes. Um, and then I will have planned out the night before what I want to work on. Um, and I'm usually working on more than one project at a time. I don't always work on more than one project within the same day, but sometimes I do. So it might be, all right, I'm going to draft the next three scenes of this middle grade book that I'm working on. Uh, I'm also going to look at the comments I got back from some critique partners on a picture book that I'm working on. And um, I'm either going to think about that or incorporate that. Um, and I and I always have a very long list of administrative things to do. I give presentations, so I'll have to work on slides for that. I might actually rehearse the presentation. Um, and a, a long list, I'm, I'm doing a, a trip to Las Vegas to give a presentation, so I need to make the flight arrangements and hotel arrangements and all of the logistics around that. Logistics around school visits, following up with bookstore visits. So. I can sometimes spend a, my whole day, my whole work day, just doing administration and logistics. And I have to often prevent myself from doing that um, so that I have time to do my creative expression also. How do you section that up? I, ha I have the same weakness sometimes. The yeah. blog will get away from me. This podcast will get away from me. It's, it's writing a chase and it's like writing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, how do you sure. Um, sometimes I try to make it a day. So Monday is going to be all of my administration stuff. And here's the long list. I want to try to bang this all out in a day. Um, or I'll say the morning is going to be creative. The afternoon is going to be logistics or something like that. Uh, I try to go for a walk or get get out. I do some some form of exercise almost every day. Um, right now it's it's walk. I'm walking pretty much every day now. Um, and that can be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half. I listen to audiobooks. Um, or music or podcasts at the same time. So I can, some of that is work and some of it's pleasure. Um, and then thereafter, I, you know, go grocery shopping, you know, go to physical therapy, all, you know, all the other stuff I have um, late. And I try to make all of those types of appointments later in the afternoon. Um, and I almost, I very rarely work in the evening unless I'm doing some edits that I can do in front of the TV. Was that something that was true when you weren't writing that you're just, naturally more in tune, I don't know what, what the word would be, but, but a better worker in the mornings? Oh, very much, yeah. Um, and in the earlier parts of my career, when I was working at a very ferocious pace, um, I would go into the office very early, often at my desk by 6 or 6.30, and my husband would drop the kids off at daycare, and then I would work right through until 4 or 4.30 so that I could pick up the kids at an earlier time. So he would bring the kids in a little later. I would try to pick them up a little earlier so it shortens their day, but I could still get a, a long work day in the office. And then after baths and bedtime, I, I almost always worked again in the evening. That was when you were just when you were just working on on, on pharmaceutical and business type yeah. things. Yeah, mm -hmm. at a very ferocious pace. And now I've also incorporated things that are work. So, for example, I love going to the movies. I love movies. Um, it's also, however, part of my 
work and my creative process. So that's great that I can, and I incorporate that into most weeks. I would say at least two or three times a month, I go to the movies um, during the day or in the afternoon. And it's something I absolutely love to do. Um, sometimes it'll be social and I'll meet friends. And it's also though part of my work and, and studying movies and dialogue and um, and plot lines is something I really enjoy, but it also helps my craft. And you like going to the actual theater, sitting there in the dark on the, with the yep. big screen. I try to prioritize. There's, there's some movies that are big screen movies, you know, Maverick, for example, you know, that it was, I loved it. And I'm so glad I saw it on the big screen. Um, I also saw uh, Ticket to Paradise with um, George Clooney and George Julia Roberts recently, which was a very good, enjoyable movie in the theater, but that wasn't necessarily a big screen movie. That didn't have to be one that I saw in the theater. So I do try to prioritize action, superhero. I, I prioritize those in the theater, whereas something else I might watch at home. You're a big superhero fan? I like I like all I have very, very eclectic movie taste, except something that's a real tearjerker. Um, you know, something where the dog dies, forget it, I'm out. Um, you know. <laughs> I should put a warning on the on the poster for those types of movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I want to I want to be entertained and thrilled. I don't want to leave depressed. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but I like them all. I like the superhero movies, horror movies, um, kids animated. Um, yeah, I love the Hotel Transylvania movies, the Minions. I I, I watch it all. Uh, I watched. I was cynical about Maverick because I was I was meh on Top Gun uh, okay. originally, and when, so I waited till it came out uh, and I could stream it on here at home, uh, and I regretted it. I had no idea. I was just expecting propaganda, and it was it was USA were the best, but that movie was deeply emotional. I kind of like, oh, I should have gone to the big screen. I I I, I missed out. I should have been there in the theater. Yeah, I agree. I thought I thought they did a really great job, especially, you know, with the plane scenes and, and inside the plane. I thought it was a very immersive experience. And I uh, had I went to an arts theater just this weekend. Uh, Steamed audience knows that we record the uh, show in advance. I try to mention the date. It's uh, December 5th, the Steamed audience of, of 2022. So if the aliens have landed prior to March when you're hearing this, we're not talking about it because we, we don't know about it. But I went to see The Fablemans, which I can't say enough good things about. And it, I was surprised it wasn't playing at, on the bigger screens, but it wasn't. So I had to go to an art theater and I got there at 2.05, which I'm used to. You get to the theater, you're going to sit through 20 to 30 minutes of previews. So I just show up late. No, the movie had already started uh, just right on the dot. And what you mentioned Steven Spielberg earlier and, 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 and the, the importance of being related to him. Uh, but my God, I have been an admirer of his all my life. Uh, so it felt like I was watching a superhero origin story since it's his life story translated roughly. Um, and and I can't, it's one of the finest pieces of art I've ever beheld. Just an incredible experience at the theater. If you haven't seen it, put it on your list, The Fablemans. It's incredible. Yes, it, I, I have seen the preview multiple times, which is interesting that I, and I, I hate to miss the previews at the movies because I do jot on my calendar what's coming out and what I want to see. Um, and I saw the preview for that multiple times, but it didn't come to my big, my big theater that I have the membership to. Um, so I'll have to hunt around a little bit more to find that because it is something I'm really interested in. 
But like I say, I had to go to a theater that that's out of my way that I usually don't go to, but I wasn't I wasn't gonna miss this. So I read all the, the movie books as a child about how he grew up, but it's like, oh, this is the movie version of that story I loved so much when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> and it uh, just as it, it, in terms of um, doing a self portrait and being just as honest as he possibly can. I mean, obviously it's, it's carefully crafted to be a film and to be compelling and all of that. But the way he looks at his parents and his entire family situation, I, I yearn for that kind of courage as an artist. It, it's absolutely amazing. Um, Mr. Spielberg, if you're listening, come on the show. By God, we'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> so uh, you go, you, you see the movies. I assume you're reading um, as well. In fact, you had talked elsewhere about reading The Poet by Michael Connolly and how that transformed your, your love of reading got you reinvigorated a bit. Am I, am I hearing that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we did touch on that I was a reluctant reader uh, as as a kid. Um, and that that went on through, even through that English major, you know, it was tough for me to read uh, read a lot of the books. And when I took a Shakespeare class and I was lucky, I was able to get the the PBS videos of them and watch them on, on VHS in the, um, the university library. Shakespeare is very difficult for me to read um, and watching it is a whole different experience and a much easier way for me to understand it. But my reluctancy of reading wasn't limited to Shakespeare. Um, it, it really went on. Um, and then I was reading more industry and trade and business related. You know, I'd read The Economist and The New York Times and, and try to read things that would help advance my career. Um, and it wasn't until my young adulthood, maybe my early 20s, that I was browsing through the bookstore. I'm not even sure what got me there. Um, and I grabbed a book. I didn't know the author. It was called The Poet. It sounded like a good mystery. Um, and I read it and I, I thought it was, oh my God, I loved it. And I'm like, I'm gonna go back and get more by this author. And money was, I was single. I was working during the day and waitressing at night. Money was tight. So for me to spend tip dollars on paperbacks was, um, you know, was kind of a big deal. So I bought the um, the earlier Harry Bosch books. And then I started talking to some people about I'm reading this. And then someone turned me on to Patricia Cornwell. And then the firm got really big and I read the firm and I thought it was so good. So then I read all of John Grisham's books. Uh, and when I first started writing, I had then had a lot of thrillers under my belt and I started studying them and thought I'm going to that's what I'm going to write a thriller that backdrops the pharmaceutical industry. And that was the very first sort of big project that I worked on in my adulthood. Um, and I did finish a, a manuscript that has gone out on wide submission twice um, without any offers. So it's in my trunk. I often talk about my trunk and my trunk novels. There's a there's a lot of stuff in there but the, the thrillers in there as well. Gotcha. So one day we're all, we're all going to read it and it's going to blow us away and it will be worth the wait. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, nice thing about trunk novels is sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can trans, uh, uh, trans, I want to say transmorph, but that's not the word. You can, you can make them into something new, whatever it was that wasn't working or it maybe held it back you can reconfigure it a bit and it can go on to hopefully have new life or I've got uh, one book that uh, never went anywhere, but by God, I managed to farm out parts of it into four different books. Yeah. So it wasn't time wasted. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It's, it's never time wasted because it's also, um, you know, it, it, 
exploring those craft muscles um, through through the creation of all of those. But there are many that I've gone and I've taken. I'm like, oh, I did a whole did a whole scene or chunk of scenes about this. I'm gonna pull that out and put it into the project that I'm working on now. So they do get kind of like Frankensteined in a way uh, and and made into or borrowed from. So what, 2003, about we're thereabouts, you take this uh, writing class and, and, and lean in toward writing. What happens? Are you just kind of like, I'm just going to have a little bit of fun or do you immediately take it serious? <laughs> At first, it's just a little bit of fun, but it doesn't take very long for me to get to a serious place um, and think, you know what, I, I think I could not necessarily get something big published, but I'm going to write something bigger. I'm not, I'm going to do more than, you know, just the exercise or the exercises assigned are always going to be for the novel that I'm working on at that time. Um, and it, so that class, I finished the legal thriller. And then I started a book about three girls who find a book and create a, um, a secret cooking club. And I work on the secret cooking club book for I draft it very quickly, probably in six or eight weeks. Um, the main character's name is going to be Kelly Quinn, and that's the book. It's going to be Kelly Quinn's Secret Cooking Club, and I bang out a draft really quickly. And I'm like, the pl I wasn't thinking of writing for children really, um, but that's the voice that this came out. My kids were in right in that age, so I was surrounded by the voice voices often. Um, and I banged out that that draft really quickly and then rewrote it with the help of that class and critique partners for a year or more um, before I felt like, you know, maybe I will see if I can get a literary agent and see what I can do with this. Researched agents sent it to 18 and one of them read it and said, you know, I, I think there's something really good here. The first thing I'd like you to do is consider rewriting it, which isn't necessarily what I wanted to hear, but her comments made sense. And I made it wasn't it ended up not being a complete rewrite. I made the changes um, particularly to the ending. And um, and then she signed me on as a client once she saw the rewrite. And thereafter, she sold it pretty quickly to Simon and Schuster. The original ending was they all died and thank goodness she changed it because then there could be sequels. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, esteemed audience, uh, we, we should say that's 2003 that that that, that happens. Um, 2003 is probably when I when I started writing um, the book just had Mad, which so Kelly Quinn's secret cooking club was thereafter renamed just add magic because it was shorter and snappier and that ended up coming out in 2010 it was probably sold more like 2008 um you know those those publication timelines are really long so uh, I, I wanted to point out just you know she said 18 agents and then the the 18th one wanted to rewrite that's a whole different world for querying esteemed audience the query minds are, are very different now if you're if you're in despair because it's been longer than 18 queries well number one uh keep going uh improve your craft maybe there's something you could do to to improve things uh, a little bit as well but 18 that's still 17 rejections that has to feel like a lot before you get that 18th even back uh back in 2003 2004 right yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, re rejection is a huge part of this job and probably the hardest, the hardest part because this work is it's very, very personal. 
Um, not only do you put your own blood, sweat, and tears and time into it, it's a lot of heart. It's a lot of, you know, it's your ideas, it's my ideas, it's my creation, each one of my projects. I love, you know, I'm, I think it's a masterpiece. Um, so getting, re getting rejections can be hurtful and it is sometimes difficult not to get down and sort of pull back up by the bootstraps and, and keep going. And 18 at the time felt like a lot, but when I look back and if I was talking to someone about querying agents, 18 does not seem like a huge number to me. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if people are querying 30 and 50 agents. Yeah, no, that to me, that's the fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> Only 17 rejections. Now you're, you're going to go on and you're going to get to some, some rejections elsewhere. It's never uh, all, all, all easy street from, from that moment, but 18, that's pretty, that's pretty good. I'd take that. I'd take that. Um, now, I know something curious happens once Just Add Magic comes out, somehow or other, you end up with all the rights reverted to you and, and no representation. How does that work? Yeah, so my um, my second book you know, is often referred to as a sophomore novel, which is not another Just Add Magic book. It's another standalone. Um, at the time, it was called The Haunting of Sidney McKenzie. It ended up coming out years and years later under the title Sidney McKenzie Knocks Him Dead. That went on submission um, to publishers and didn't get an offer. And at that time, um, my agent and I reassessed and uh, and decided not to work together anymore. And that was also a hurtful situation. I didn't know if or when I would be able to get another agent. Um, but then serendipity does what it does. And somehow I have all of the Just Add Magic magic in my hands um, and no and no one to represent me. Then a lot of things sort of happened at the same time. Uh, I was looking for another literary agent and I also reconnected. Now Facebook was getting big at this time and I reconnected with some friends from University of Southern California, including my roommate, my freshman year roommate, who also had gone in undeclared and wanted to get into the film school. While I tapped out and came back east, she did get into the film school and she had been writing for animation for a number of years and had recently relocated back to Pennsylvania. We had lunch and I explained to her that I had this book and I envisioned a lot more for it than a standalone novel. I had written it to be a trilogy and I very much saw it on the big or small screen um, and asked for advice. Uh, and she didn't really have anything specific. She had been a, a writer for animation, so hadn't been as much on the selling side of projects or and had anything to do with book adaptation. But she said, why don't you send it to the agent that I work with? I'm not sure if she can help you, but she might have some, some advice. So I did, and I didn't hear back from, from that agent for a long time. I followed up several times, and I, I think it might've been a year-ish later um, I got a call when I was in the carpool line to pick up my kids from school and it, it was her, it was that agent. And she said, I just finished your book. I love it. I think maybe I can sell it. And she did like, I mean, there was, there are more pieces and, and, and complexities in there, but um, that's the, the general direction that the story went. Um, so kind of amazing. And then I also did get another literary agent. Um, so I had two agents. I still do have two agents. And the literary agent went on to sell several more books. Well, literary agent number two, is that about uh, 17 rejections before we were able to get with her? Is that a different process? 
Uh, it wasn't um, because at, at this time, you know, I'm a little bit more entrenched in the industry and I'm following different agents on, on Twitter, I'm meeting some at conferences. So I'm starting to network a little bit. And there are some agents who strike me as, you know, I think this one might be a good fit for, for me because I've met them and personality wise, maybe there's some chemistry. I'm more familiar with what uh, the other authors they're working with. So um, I, I, I queried less, let's say five or eight. Um, that I thought I had some decent connection with. Uh, and the one I really wanted turned, I, I sent her a story and she turned that story down. Uh, and I said, you know, I, I really want to work with you. Um, I have other projects. Can I send you something else? Um, and I think I did send something else and that didn't grab her. But she did end up signing me as a client. But it it took, you know, some months of back and forth. I don't want to say convincing her, but of us sort of sussing each other out to see if there was good chemistry there um and and there was and we worked together for a very long time and was very successful for both of us so that that year because you don't know that just add magic is going to get picked up by amazon it's going to be a big series it's going to get the, the the emmy nomination and one day you're going to be on the middle grade ninja podcast all of that is is in your future so for that year when you don't have representation you no longer have your literary agent but you're still attending conferences what keeps you from falling into despair how do you persevere to the point that you can't come out successful oh i can't remember at that specific time, except that I know I was so driven and I feel like I had a lot of confidence in my ideas and some of the projects that I was working on. Um, but I will tell you in general, there's there's many little things I keep in my office and you probably do too. But one of them is I bring this to school visits um, and show it to, to the students. This is Dumbledore's wand that I got at Universal. And, and um, on times like that, when I really kind of get down a lot of rejections, this is one of the touchstones that I look at because to me, this communicates that a character, an idea that was once in someone's head can become an industry. And I think that is, that is an amazing concept for me to wrap my head around. Um, <clears throat> but those are the kind of things, the kind of dreams that that kept me going and continue to keep me going. So when well, let's talk a little bit about one dream I think a lot of writers who are watching or listening to us uh, have is uh, the idea of having your your story adapted for television or film. So the Just Add Magic TV show gets under underway. I'm assuming it's a smooth process from start to finish from the time you find out they've got the option to when the show comes out and, and it is amazing. No amount of dread or uncertainty in between. <laughs> well, it actually, it actually wasn't optioned. So this was, it was kind of now I, I'm getting the gist of how these things work more, but it was a flat out purchase. Um, they um, they made the acquisition right from the get go, and then at the time, so now we're probably circa 2013, 14 ish, um, and Amazon does this thing where they have pilot season, and they <clears throat> create pilots for several shows, and then the audience votes on which of the pilots they liked the best, and that's the 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 project that Amazon then progresses forward with a full season. So it went pretty quickly <clears throat> to pilot, and then the pilot was tested. It won, it got the green light, and it advanced to, to season one. Well, who's gonna vote against three adorable little girls? That <laughs> <laughs> 
Is that a, a nerve wracking period when that's up for uh, for votes? I'm assuming you're calling everybody, you know, and asking them to vote. Oh, heck, yeah. I had a nice big party, too, and I tried to get everyone to everyone to vote. Um, yeah, nerve wracking. But I also I didn't I had a lot of naivete at the time. I still do, I should say, both in writing and my film stuff, even though I've been at this now for probably about 20 years, I still consider myself a novice. And I know that there's just so much that I don't know. And I'm learning all the time. But at that time, I don't know that I knew enough to be nerve wracked, or what the stakes were or what it could be. I mean, even something like a show like that getting nominated for an Emmy, even when that happened, I didn't even know that that was a possibility. I, I didn't I just was not familiar enough. I'm still not, you know, with the world to know what can be. Um, but sure enough, it, it progresses. It goes to a season. The season does really well. And so this is how clueless I am. I start getting pictures from friends of mine who were in Manhattan. There are humongous billboards in Times Square for Just Add Magic. And I, I had no idea. Like, I just, I didn't... I didn't know the size and the scope of what it was at the time or what it could be. Um, so I was kind of along for, for a ride. I assume that makes things a lot easier uh, in some ways. Uh, is that something that's happening um, apart from you or are you involved? How, how involved are you with the show? No, I was, inv I was involved in the beginning and with the pilot. I went out for the filming of the pilot with my daughter who is now uh, nearly 20. And at the time, she was the exact same age. In fact, shares a birthday with one of the three um, stars of Just Add Magic. So uh, she and I go out with another one of my girlfriends, and we are we're there. We're in like little director chairs. We got the earphone things on. They're like take one, and we are physically there, um, but not providing input. It's, it's more of a courtesy and a thrill um, to see all of these people. Right there's craft services the food people and directors and actors and makeup and costume all working to execute something that was once in my head it was really really an amazing experience and i'm so appreciative that i was welcome to be there to attend the filming of that pilot um, it was very cool and i was still working by the way at my company at the time so i'm out in la taking pictures like of being on set sending it to people who were in conference room meetings and say look where i am um so it's it very cool uh to see it all come to life and i am so grateful and appreciative to everyone and everything amazon studios did to support the project i'm always curious because uh, I've, I've unfortunately not yet had uh that that experience although it's a bucket list item so amazon if you're listening there's books available go check them out <laughs> um but just you and me talking for, forget forget anybody else who might be listening when you're there and on set and you're looking at all these things that, that sprang uh, initially from your imagination and now other people are involved, is there ever a moment where well, I didn't imagine it that way? Let me let me tell you how to change just this one or two little things here. Oh, for sure. Um, there's definitely things that I that were inconsistent with my vision, but and that wasn't always easy to swallow. Um, which was a learning experience for me. And I think I've matured in, in that regard a lot since that time. Um, 
But I did know, and my film, I had a wonderful film agent, I still do, that was cheering me on from the sidelines saying, this is how it works and it's it's gonna be great. And it and it was great. Um, and I don't say that the, the book or the, or the screen, like one is necessarily better than the other. They're, they're different, they're different executions. And that's been a huge learning for me is the way that something's executed on paper versus on screen is different. Um, and I would have benefited from sort of studying that in, in school decades earlier, but it was something I learned more hands-on. Um, and now I have a much better appreciation for. Gotcha. So you're just kind of biting your tongue while that happens and then learning to appreciate later. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. But well said. Okay. You can't, you can't pull the child actors aside and say, no, say it this way. <laughs> yep. I'm ha- by the way, having similar, so this is now years and years and years later, I work on um, audiobooks for some of my books. And I, I read, I'm working on a project right now and I, I hear it. I hear the voices in my head in a certain way. And when I listen to the audiobook, different, and it's different than what I heard, it takes me a minute to say, you know what, that's pretty good. Like it's different, but it's still good. Um, and so I'm still having the same experience, even though it's many years later. It was an experience I had also was wanting to tell the audiobook narrator, no, say it this way. And then stopping myself like, nope, let them express themselves. This will be a, it'll be, it'll be a better reading if they're able to do it within reason uh, with their interpretation. And then there are moments where like, they do such a good job, like, oh, I'm a better writer than I thought I was. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Um, So how, in a practical sense, once uh, the you know there are billboards all over uh, the place that are advertising just add magic, uh, you're you're world famous um, uh, in, in some respects. Uh, and if you're not, well, this 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 episode's about to go live. You will be. Yeah. <laughs> so, how does having that experience of, of of everybody knowing about what was initially just just you and your book? How does that change things for you? How does that change? Does that change the way you look at your fiction, knowing that this might also one day be a show or a movie or? Um, For sure. I I, I always think when I was writing a project, I always had that in mind. But once that door is just cracked open, um, it did. The success of, of Just Add Magic has provided an entree for me to meet with other people and other companies. Um, Before the pandemic, about once a year, once every 18 months, my agent would sort of arrange a road show for me. So I would go to LA and I would meet with, for maybe four or five days, several different companies um, or executives. And I think it it helps to get those, to get my foot in the door with the success of Just Add Magic um, taking the lead. And even now I can send a, you know, cold call email to someone um, who I might, you know, have, have seen their their work or something they've directed or produced. Um, and I can send an email and with being able to put, you know, Emmy nominated Just Add Magic um, in the first line, I think helps give me some credibility. I was on, just backing up to the road shows, it was on one of those road shows that I was pitching uh, my work and 
um, that's when uh, Saltwater Secrets, which at the time had a different title, um, was pitched to a company and the book hadn't, I hadn't finished writing the book yet. And that book was optioned before I had finished writing it as a, a byproduct of one of those roadshows that I'd been on. Well, that's outstanding. Very exciting. Um, when you come in and you're, you're, you know, you're just at magic, that's, that's your, that's your street cred. Uh, if you want to pitch them for an adult mystery or I don't know, a, a psycho slasher horror movie, I don't know what you're pitching. <laughs> does that, does that extend or do they want to see something else? Give us more uh, middle grade, give us more children's type story. Type no, I, go, I go in as, you know, self-branded myself, um, queen of tween. Um, and it wouldn't be the right person that wouldn't, it, the same executive would and take a pitch for something tween and also for a slasher that's probably a different different team different department but children, kids and family and adult are generally different people um so i have only pitched my my younger ideas gotcha. and i wanted to talk a little bit about uh being the the queen of tween uh, what makes you the queen of tween? What, uh, how well, I, again, so I, I use that as sort of a, a branding. I, I don't, it's not necessarily my title, but if I think of, you know, what is in the scope of what I'm going to post on my Facebook page, well, I'm, I'm like, I just went to see Violent Night and I did post that even though that's not necessarily a tween movie. It's still movie. It's still holiday. I have a Christmas book. I think it still falls within my brand to post that. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, go so far outside my brand to post something um, else. Uh, so th th that's more of a branding thing than it is a title. Gotcha. No, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't asking for your bona fides. Yeah. When was the coronation? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am curious. What? What? Uh, uh, whether you were the queen or just really, really high up in the in the rankings, where, wherever you stand with the tweens. What is it that that makes a good tween voice? How do you stay in touch with making sure that you're, uh, despite not being a tween yourself, you're you're able to to connect with that audience and 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 to offer up a fair representation? I think the voice at, definitely at the time of Just Add Magic, the voice came naturally to me, and maybe it's because I was surrounded by tweens, or maybe it's because I'm still tweeny somewhere in here. Um, I have tried to stretch older into YA, and I often get the feedback. So you've made your character 18, but you still sound like you're 13. Um, like my voice that naturally comes out on the page um, sounds like a tween voice. Uh, I do, when I do my school visits, it does help me get in tuned with tweens today because naturally my tween voice and tween brain is either when I was a tween or when my kids were tween and now my kids are, are, are grown up. Um, so it does take a little bit of effort to get back into the fold. Um, and one of the ways I do that is by doing school visits um, to understand what the tone is and the, you know, the buzzwords and, and the attitudes about certain things with tweens right now. Okay, so you go and you do the school visit. I assume there's a presentation. Everybody buys a book because they're, they're good attendees. Uh, and you sign a bunch of books. When does when do you when are you able to to get that homework in to to interact? What what kinds of ways are you interacting to get that information that you need? 
Yeah, ahead of a school visit, I almost always have either by request or um, or the school facilitate a couple of tweens to kind of help me. You know, they bring help me bring things in from my car and help me set up the, the stage and the podium. And that's when I can kind of probe, you know, what's your name and what kind of things you're interested in? Oh, do you you, know, you play soccer? Do you do um, is it a, is it a co-ed team? Um, you know, things that I, I kind of want to know what's the how does it work right now? Um, so that gives me kind of, kind of an intimate group of, I don't know, let's say four or five or six kids to, to chat with socially. Um, I give the presentation. I can tell sometimes from the questions that they ask um, what's hot on their mind. Um, illustrations are one that always comes up. So I think that tells me you know that they're very interested in, in art. Um, and the way that they interact with each other, interact with their teachers. I, you know, I'm watching, I'm an observer during, even though I'm presenting, I'm an observer that whole time. And then I get some great one-on-one -on -one intel when I'm signing their books. What's your name? How do you spell it? Oh, that's a pretty name. And, and just starts a, a little bit of one-on-one -on -one dialogue that I try to glean some intel. If I'm working on a project and I have specific questions, I can often toss those out on Facebook um, or Twitter and say, um, you know, I have a 13-year-old that is going to play a board game. Um, do 13 year olds play board games anymore? Question mark. If so, what board game is it? Question mark. Do they even know what Monopoly is? Question mark. Like, and I, I normally can get a lot of great feedback that way. Um, and other tween authors too, that I'm friendly with, we can talk and, and either discuss how are we handling a certain topic or issue or what's, what's the buzz in, in your world. Well, I assume at some events, uh, maybe not necessarily every school visit, but some events, they're there, they're coming to see you. Uh, they're they're Sunday Callahan fans, so I'm assuming you're able to ask them, "What did you like about this book? What 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 do you think was maybe could have been a little bit better?" Are you able to get that kind of direct feedback? Um, not necessarily about any one book, because I often go in with the whole suite and I talk to them more about the right about writing and the writing process. Sometimes they will ask me specific questions about about some of the, uh, you know, a storyline or a plot line. Um, but I don't usually get direct feedback. And it's funny, the range of fandom um, is sometimes I go and the kids will walk in and they're like, who, who are you? Do we have an assembly today? What are you? Are you the magician? Are you the, like, so sometimes there's that. And then I did one last week with um, a much smaller group. So sometimes I'm giving very, very big um, groups of students presentations. And sometimes it's smaller groups and they both have their pros and cons, but um, the smaller groups allow for a little bit more, um, more conversation. And that group walked in and a couple of the girls were holding my books and they just, they're staring at me and they're like, oh, uh, and that's and that's great. That feels really good. When I'm doing bookstores too, I can usually tell when someone walks in the door whether or not they're I'll call them a just add magic fan, which is I use that as a broad term for a tween that's right in my zone. Um, but I can I can just tell by looking at them and as soon as they see me and I'll have a just add magic book and some other books and usually they're a little shy and the, and um, and I can just tell they're a fan as soon as I see them. So when you're when you're meeting somebody who, who you know is a fan uh, and you want it to go well because they're going to remember this uh, long after you've you've moved on to the next thing. 
what what are some things you'll do to create a memorable experience and to make sure that they feel appreciated for having come out and shown their love for your series? Uh, hmm. I guess I do a lot of different things. I obviously always sign their book and whatever else they'd like they would like signed, and I personalize it. And I try to talk to them for a minute or two before I sign it because I might write something also in the book, like "Good luck on your soccer game" or whatever it might be, so that they'll have that thereafter. Um, I, I'll ask them if they're just Ad Magic fans. I'll ask them which one of the girls is their favorite, which one do they resonate with the most, or what do they like about them. Um, for the Lost in books, which one was your favorite? Oh, why do you like Rome? Um, what's your favorite pizza? Ugh, you know what? I really like pepperoni, but I know why you like that. And I and I just try to get them into a dialogue on um, on one aspect of one of the books. They might offer that they're also a writer, and so we might talk about oh, what kind of a project are you working on? Do you share your work with your friends? Um, do you get feedback from your teacher? Uh, but I think just trying to talk to them like they're they're people, you know, they're people, they're friends and getting getting to know them a little bit um, hopefully leaves them with a feeling that I'm I, which I am genuinely interested in them and their reading um, and how appreciative I am that they like me. Now that we're knock on every piece of there of wood there is mid pandemic within the range of the end and you're you're back out and you're you're doing visits again. How regularly are you um, doing school visits? How, how much of your schedule does that take up? Um, so they kind of ebb and flow. This fall I did, no, I don't know, maybe eight or 10. They School visits take a lot of energy. Um, they take a lot of logistical time and research and reaching out um and then the coordination for the actual visit themselves then the traveling um i do put effort into what i'm going to share i have lots of cool audio visual aids that i bring um so it does take a lot of energy um and i don't like to do them all year round so i try to get into you know travel mode and i try to do bookstores around the same time my newest book my big heart-shaped fail came out a couple of weeks ago it was september and i wanted to Kind of hit the street as part of the launch of that of that new book um but now i probably won't there might i might do one or two in march for i think it used to be dr seuss's birthday and now it's called read across america i think i have two visits i'm going to do in march um but then i won't gear up again maybe until closer to the fall next year and i'll do i'll reach out to a couple of schools in in the fall um this this past fall i re i did a lot of outreach I spent a lot of time doing outreach. I don't think I'll do that again. Um, I'll try to be a little bit more surgical in my targets. Um, so I don't do them a lot um, because they are energy intensive and time consuming. I enjoy them very much, but uh, it's a it's a lot of time and I need to spend more time writing. Well, a day with the school visit, is it, is it still possible to get in some writing time? Probably not, um, especially you know, if it's an hour travel, between setup and takedown, that's easily an hour. The presentation is an hour. Signing's a half hour. Ride home, and afterwards, I would definitely be too, you know, too spent from the excitement. Got you. Yeah. So hopefully, all those students that have had this incredible encounter with you greater appreciate that. Hey, there, there maybe could have been another book that's not going to be because <laughs> <laughs> that instead. Yeah. <laughs> But presumably the books that, that that do exist will be of a higher quality because of the, the enrichment of the experience, right? Yeah, for sure. 
At least that's the rationalization I use. I... <laughs> so um, well, I'm, I'm watching our time and it's flying by, but I did want to ask you, you've got uh, posted at your website for anybody who's thinking, hey, I, I think this sounds pretty good. I want to be a writer like Cindy Callahan. Uh, you've got six secrets to writing success. And since I've got you, I thought we'd go through them a little bit. Uh, and, and, and get some nuance on, on a couple of these things. So six secrets. The first is a well-written story. What does that mean? What's a well-written story look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a big, it was tough to kind of come six and, and smush them all together. Um, so I think well-written has a lot of pieces to it. You know, character setting and plot, or an idea character setting and plot. To me, those are sort of the four, the four different buckets. It has to be a, an interesting idea or an intriguing idea with, told with colorful characters um a, a nice interesting plot ideally some twists and put in a, a setting that people will enjoy um and that's the macro level but then the micro levels need to need to be well done too um spelling grammar typos all of that stuff um and that's the that number one is sort of the craft piece um i'll put one more little plug for the micro so i am I am a sort of a big idea person and I'm a typo queen. So I um, do spend time on the back end after something's drafted with proofreaders and um, and rereading and rereading and trying to catch a lot of those those little things, which you call them little things because they are little things. But if someone that you want to be impressed with your project um, sees a lot of those little things, it, it's it's not impressive. So spending time on the minutia is really important. Uh, and step two is a uh, well-told story. So how is a well-told story different than a well-written story? Yeah, I might have sort of combined those a little bit, but I think the told part is is the storytelling piece of the craft. So that's the, how is it going to unfold? What are the order I'm going to put my clues in? Am I gonna have cliffhangers at the end of each each chapter to draw the reader in to help turn the page? So that's the well-told piece. No, that's very distinct and different than, than well-written. You absolutely need both steps. I, I support continuing six, six steps. <laughs> so step number three uh, is feedback loop. What's, what's that and how do you get one? Yep, I think critique partners are priceless um, because I might read pages in a certain way, and once I and and they're of course they're brilliant. Every time I send them out to critique partners, they're already brilliant, um, and they'll bring things to my attention that, yep, I didn't see it that way, or I don't agree with you. But if two or three people say it and I don't agree with it, there's something there that I have to look at and change. Um, so both I get feedback both on a macro level and a micro level from critique partners. I don't know how a writer can a writer can certainly write without critique partners. That's fine. Uh, I don't know that you can have a an excellent piece that you want to show to agents and editors without having had that feed that feedback loop. And you're a member of two different critique groups or have been, right? I have been. Um, at the one of them sort of fizzled during um, during COVID, uh, and I actually just joined another one for picture books because I'm, I'm just starting to do some picture books. But uh, I have tried to have a, a range of critique partners. Um, and like I said, I also have like a, um, a um, proofreader that I hire before I send something to my agent. I normally have it have it proofread because there's still going to be 
commas and periods and typos and, and things that I'm reading something, I have snowball. Half the time snowball's one word and half time it's two words. And that's, you know, I, I'm shocked that I picked it up because that's the type of thing that I would very easily miss and depend on a proofreader to pick that up. Uh, out of curiosity, you, you hire a proofreader, but the agent is going to get 15% at some point, right? So couldn't the, couldn't the agent maybe uh, this spring for their proofreader? <laughs> so I'll do it even before I send it to my agent because I don't want my agent to get it and feel like I either was sloppy about it or I didn't care about it. It's all, to me, that's like a lack of professionalism. If I'm going to send something to my agent that I know probably has a lot of typos in it, even though I've read it many times, um, I think it's worth spend and proofreading copy editing is a lot more expensive than proofreading. Um, I think it's worth spending that money up, up front to have a more professional appearance with my work. There you go. Steamed audience. You heard it. That's what separates the pros from the amateurs. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, then step four is a well-pitched query. Yes. You talked about it earlier. I think having a, a query and I even have a, um, you're going to need a well, a, a well written query. If you're going to query agents, having a well written query paragraph or summary or pitch of your book helps with every process of your book. And I'm not pitching agents anymore because I have one, but I make a pitch paragraph, two paragraphs for every project that I work on. And when I'm sending it to my current agent, even though I'm not pitching her, I say, okay, here's, here's what the pitch of the book could, could sound like, because it gives her a frame of what I'm going for before she even reads page one. Um, you know, maybe I am comparing it to this other project or this is the log line. Uh, and, and that gives her an idea of when she's gonna pitch editors, here's about where I'm thinking it's gonna be. Um, and she might disagree with that for a number of reasons. That's not selling right now. Or um, in order for that pitch to work, this and this is going to have to happen in the manuscript. But I like to have a pitch for every project that I work on. Um, and it also helps me keep my work more intriguing if I know I have this North Star that I'm working towards. Uh, that that query you'll write that before you write the the full book then or some version of it probably probably in the beginning middle and end i might write it ahead of time here's what i think i'm going for and then as i write the novel i'll have to i'll have to make changes query is going to be edited a million times before it goes out and if it goes out to a handful of of agents and i would advise doing agents kind of in in buckets you know send it out to 10 and see what type of feedback you get because depending on on that, you you might tweak it um, or you've gotten more experienced or more smarter or you're more smarter um, or you've gotten smarter or your work has transformed a little bit um, and you want to finesse the query a little bit for the next 10 and so on. And it can evolve. Gotcha. So by uh, keeping your 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 submissions to the shorter groups, that way, if there is a mistake or anything, you can catch that and you're not repeating it all across. Don't don't if shoot. It's something that's it's something that's not resonating, or if you get an email back from, I don't even know what it could be. Maybe you use the term older middle grade, and someone you might hear back from three of those agents that say something like, "I don't know what you mean by older middle grade." Then you know that 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 term isn't working. I need to change change it or research it or figure out how I'm going to better explain that. 
No, you're right back to that agent. You say, I heard it on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. So I can't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, step five is an advocate. What, what, an advocate. Uh, so for me, that's for me, that's an agent. It's also my my family. Um, it's also my critique group. Um, you know, they're your your cheering squad and people who are on your side. Um, and from the agent perspective or lawyer or whoever it is, you know, there's there's a lot more people who know a lot more than me. Um, and knowing I I have those people to advocate for me uh, is huge because I don't, um, I, I'm not an agent. I don't wanna be an agent. I'm not uh, an attorney. I don't wanna be an attorney. So I can get those people on my side to do that portion of the work for me. Uh, and then six is a time and a place to write. Yes. Time and a place um, to write for you. Whatever time works, whatever place works. Yesterday I, I was reading pages and I knew there was going to be stuff going on at my house. And for some reason I didn't want to sit at the coffee shop, which I often sit at the coffee shop. So I sat in my car for an hour and edited probably 30 pages by hand. I had my coffee. It was super comfortable. I was looking at the forest. So whatever your place, whatever your time, um, carve it out because unless your butt is in a chair, it's not going to happen. Uh, so when butt goes in chair, when you're trying to decide whether you've had a successful session or not, do you aim for a word count? Do you aim for a story event? How do you mark your progress? That's really tough. I, sometimes I do. If I'm if I'm drafting, I definitely have word counts or page page counts that I want to reach. Um, like today, I'm editing at a more micro level, and I'm like, right, I want to try to get through 50 pages today, but sometimes you you find rabbit holes and I might only get through 10 because I found something that like needed a lot more attention than I was predicting. So um, so sometimes it's difficult because there there are these ditches all over the place and life gets in the way too. You know, the school nurse could call at any time and then your day is out the window, your week may be out the window. So um, I do try to have a plan each day, but I'm not too tough on myself if I don't meet the plan because sometimes it's sometimes the work is really deep uh, and one page can be super time consuming. Ah, alas, writing is just not one of those things that can be an exact measured count every time. Right. Yep. Um, if that's what you want, I guess I'll stick with pharmaceuticals. Eh? <laughs> 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 uh, Cindy Callahan, have you ever seen a ghost stand or a flying saucer? No and no. Sorry. <laughs> I love both. I love reading about both. I love watching movies about both, but I haven't uh, personally been in tuned enough to experience either. That's just something I'm in the habit of asking everyone who comes on the show. And I'm always surprised by, by who has a story. Like, oh, I, I, I was more of a skeptic before I started doing this show, and I've had enough brilliant people tell me the things they've seen. That, oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm watching our time, and it's it's all gone. What happened? It was... <laughs> we right made by. it easy. A privilege and a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you. You make it time for me and for esteemed audience today and for being such an excellent guest. Uh, for now, uh, although you're going to write more books, so at some point we'll, we'll maybe do this again, but for today... Okay. Uh, my last question for you is always some variation of if you could go back toward the 
last start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been most useful, and give yourself some advice that would have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of everybody who's watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Uh, I think the two bits of advice, uh, let's let's say three. One is don't be hard, don't be so hard on yourself, because um, I think I am really hard on myself. Uh, the second is um, hit the pause button early on to get more knowledgeable on craft. Um, I I would have benefited from taking some classes earlier on that um, better taught me craft, craft, which I ended up learning on the street in little bits and pieces and probably would have been more efficient if I had done some craft education in the beginning or more. Um, and the third thing is to diversify. Um, you never know what's the project that you're gonna end up loving the most or that's gonna be the one that's gonna catch. So fill your trunk, fill your trunk with partials or papers or your idea notebook and they can be flying saucer and they can be picture books and do the broad range of ages and um, and medium and and just diversify and write whatever whatever you want and lots of it. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? I hope everywhere. I have a website. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and oh, God help me, TikTok. Um, I'm not very good at it, but I am I am ticking and talking. Uh, so yeah, I should be everywhere. Uh, as always, esteemed audience, for more interviews, almost as good as this one, uh, with agents, authors, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. By God, purchase your copy of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.